Hello out there, it's Shark Carruthers here. And first things first, how are you doing? <laughs> how are you traveling this interesting road that we're all on at the moment? I I hope that you're you're not dealing with too many bumps or potholes and I and that you're in a situation that means that you can actually use this time for slowing down, um, for reflection or for anything that you think would most nourish you right now in your life. I'm I'm really hoping that today's conversation can be one of those nourishing things. It definitely was for Maria and I. In this one, we're speaking with David Charlton and Ranju Roy about their newest book, Embodying the Yoga Sutra, Support, Direction, Space. David and Ranju are senior UK-based yoga teachers, and they're founders of Sadhana Mala. And it's a collaboration that they set up in 2004 to teach yoga in various different contexts, but specializing in yoga teacher training and study courses and retreats. Their work and their practice is really deeply influenced by the work of their teachers, Paul Harvey, Peter Hersnack, and TKV Desikachar, who we mentioned quite a bit in the episode. And Maria and I were captivated by a conversation that we heard on another podcast with Ranju and Dave about the Yoga Sutras, mainly because of the the really accessible way that they talked about them and how we can use this ancient wisdom as supports for the things that we're actually struggling with every single day. And for those of you who aren't so familiar with Patanjali's Yoga Sutras, they're they're a collection of yogic teachings that, that lay out the aims and the practice of yoga, including explanations of things like the eight limbs of yoga, as well as insights about the journey of yoga and the practice and the physical and the mental and the emotional pitfalls and roadblocks that we all tend to fall into along that journey. I like to think of the sutras as a roadmap for living and it it dives into a lot of the psychology that has us expand in our lives but also that holds us back. And for something that was written thousands of years ago, it has a lot of really great insights and guidance to to offer for helping us to navigate life today, especially these days, especially the challenging times. So the yoga sutras, they're something that most yoga teachers study to some degree or other as part of their teacher training curriculum. And a lot of teachers do what they can to incorporate some of the teachings of the yoga sutras into their yoga classes, which means that you you may already be familiar with elements of the sutras like the yamas, which we talk about in our conversation today. And the yamas are traditionally shared as ethical principles or like the Ten Commandments of yoga. And they can be a little dry and even maybe uh, a little bit intimidating. But... Ranju and Dave offer a really beautiful take on them, which in my mind, it pulls them right into your heart and mind and relationships, and it immediately makes them inspirational and useful tools. So last week, Maria and I, we talked about how yoga philosophy and these philosophical principles like the sutras, like the yamas, can be a little challenging to digest. And we talked about the the importance of having contemporary guides through them to point us in the direction of how this wisdom can be put into use in our everyday lives. We, we talked about that being such a gift, and Dave and Ranju are perfect examples of the kinds of contemporary guides 
we we meant when we were having that conversation. To me, their book reads like practical poetry, and Maria and I really connected with it on so many levels. It's a it's a book that's accessible for yoga teachers and for yoga students, and it was really great having a chance to talk to them about where the ideas in the book come from and how they live this stuff every single day. So a couple of things to know before you dive in. Our biggest challenge in this conversation, in this episode, was technology. We had some issues getting a clear line because there were the four of us kind of chatting over the line uh, over thousands of miles, which isn't such an unusual thing, but we had some real challenges. And so there's a few spots where the sound is a lot less optimal than we would have liked. But we thought this conversation is way too juicy not to share it with you. So we've done our best to clean it up and we just want to ask you for your patience with the sound issues. And we hope that you enjoy this beautiful conversation that Maria and I had with Ranji Roy and Dave Charlton, authors of Embodying the Yoga Sutras, Support, Direction, Space. of an endeavor us trying to do four on Skype and actually get it recorded and actually hear each other so let's just we'll see how we go with it yeah 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 sure yeah I mean I'm so full of your book I've been I've been reading I wish yeah, I'd taken no it problem. instead of three days but I still <laughs> it's absolutely wonderful isn't it it's amazing so, so how are things going over there where you guys are how is the um yeah what's happening what's happening um I was thinking about this. Dave, do you want to start? Do you want to say something? What's happening, Dave? Well, at the moment, moment we're we're all locked down pretty much. And you can only really go out to the the shops or for medical emergencies. Um, But actually, I mean, mean, we've been like this for three weeks now. Um, But Personally, I'm actually quite enjoying it somewhat <laughs> ironically. I mean, it's been a bit hectic trying to get all our uh, classes and things online. But um, but beyond that, I'm quite curious that, you know, the roads are really quiet. Um, it's just a lot quieter in general. And um, apart from occasionally uh, going out to see people, which, I you know, I, I, I do miss. Apart from that, actually, it's kind of, made me think there's there's some lessons here about how to live you know a little bit more peacefully and a little bit more quietly and um yeah so that's my take on it what do you think Ranji? well i'd just like to say that dave is a man who is happiest in his shed sorting out his tools so i just you know, <laughs> I don't, so, um yeah it's similar kind of thing really it's um it's been very quiet i mean my yeah I don't know what to say. I was thinking that uh, there was something that Peter used to say, Peter Hurstnack used to say, which was that you live life forwards, but you understand it backwards. I think yeah. he was quoting from Kierkegaard. And I, and I really like that because in some ways, I think the test or the, the, the kind of acid test of what this period will has been like will be what happens when we go back. You know, how, how will it look when we reflect back and whether there's been a kind of a a change from how things were before or not but it has been more peaceful um you know I don't want to underplay uh, the, the, the the obvious suffering that 
a lot of people are going through and the, the traumas that it has been. But I think we are both very lucky, Dave, Dave and I. We live, you know, we live in lovely parts of the UK. We've got, you know, we got. It's easy to go out for a walk should we need to, and we've both got nice gardens. So you know, it, it, it's not like being cooped up in a in a flat in the middle of a city where you can't get out with children. Um, so it's you know it's it's not it's it's been just much quieter we've i've i've had my mother-in-law you know she's 91 and fairly disabled she's moved in so life has changed a bit for us in terms of looking after her quite a lot and you know that that would be a different thing but other than that it's been it's been quiet you know missing missing seeing people and uh, missing the my I've just, I've just become a grandfather so you know i've just seen my oh. grandson twice so you know, it, you know, we just saw him in January, and then we went to India. Dave and I went to India and got back, and pretty much lockdown happened. And uh, so I, I, I kind of missing seeing him. But. Oh, I bet! Wow. Well, congratulations on becoming a grandpa. Yeah. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. Lovely. That's exciting. You mentioned that you you mentioned you guys are getting your your um getting your classes and things online. Is that your regular classes and the, the you know your yoga classes that you're teaching, or is that the um the course that you mentioned? Uh, well, both. I mean, there's we're both doing uh, regular group classes. Um, uh-huh. We're also uh, there are a number of courses that we are in the middle of, so yeah. we've been kind of changing that to a Zoom format, which actually has worked really well. I think people, you know, there was a lot of resistance, or there was some resistance at the beginning, both to the group classes and the uh, the the training ongoing training courses. Mm-hmm. But actually, people have really appreciated linking in, coming in. I mean, we're we're kind of condensing a whole day into two or three hours with with breaks in between. But they've been they've been working really well, and um, yeah, and we've got this online um, yoga sutra study course coming up in I think it's it's June every mm-hmm. fall. So yeah, we've been planning on planning and working on that, and um, so yeah, group classes, individual classes, and, and ongoing training. Then we've got the ongoing chanting course, we, which we're doing with the lady in India, yeah. and and she was due to come over actually this just this week, but um, obviously she can't do that. So we're we're putting some of that online as well, and 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 even that has, has worked pretty well actually. It's yeah. like it's becoming the new normal to to you know go on Zoom and. <clears throat> do these things have you got have you guys noticed any um how's your how's your own personal practice changed with these times or has there been any change with it well to be honest i've been practicing more um yeah. I, 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 i've been yeah i've been practicing more i've been practicing uh, you know doing a long practice first thing in the morning maybe another one maybe a short meditation of running arm practice later on in the day um yeah i don't know know. Uh, it's been it's been very regular and i i mean probably just mine's changed yeah hasn't changed much yeah i don't think mine's changed that much yeah not not honest but i but i think to 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 some extent that's because we you know it's where we live and how we're living uh, in, in a way it's quite an established pattern so i, mm. I don't think th- this situation has made quite so much difference um i think it's made it's made me feel that my practice should be more meditative let's put it that way um yeah. not quite so physical i feel it's a time to 
to sit and reflect and be be stiller actually the world's stiller and i kind of feel um but uh, i would say that's the main thing actually no i was just i feel like that the whole move to zoom and and the the move of something that's public into a private space is given a, a quietness and a kind of personal press practice aspect even to things that are a group it's, quite, it's been interesting yes i've asked a number of people have said that as feedback from the the group i mean it's kind of both a, a group experience because i think people have liked linking in and seeing other people and practicing together but also practicing in their own space in their own home actually so that's really good I, i've been enjoying that i think that's a very good shift for people um to try and make i, th- I think you know we've people have started to get very like hooked on the yoga studio and the the group yoga class but um I think really, you know, if you look at the essence of yoga, it's about what you do at home. It's what yeah. you do in your own space. And so I think to push people to that a little bit could could actually pay dividends in the long run. You know, yeah. I think it's quite a healthy, healthy shift, actually. Yeah, we we had done a, um, a podcast about that. We were talking a little bit about that because it feels a bit like that's what we're seeing, too. And there's kind of a little bit of excitement <laughs> around that because it's it's this opportunity for students to kind of do something that we've been wanting them to do for a time, you know, for quite a time. Yeah, that's really interesting. I mean, yeah, taking it into the home more. And we also did um, the, the podcast that we did just before this one. Um, well, well, the one that we did last week was a whole episode kind of building up to to this episode, in part because the, the people that <laughs> listen to <laughs> the folks who listen to us. Some of them are yoga teachers, some of them are yoga students, and I don't know if all of them have much of a deep understanding or even recognition of the existence of the Yoga Sutras. Right. So we thought, well, why don't we talk about, why don't we start this off, not not this conversation with you, but why don't we kind of prime people a little bit by talking a little bit about our own experiences of the sutras and you know, and how we learned about them and kind of what they mean in our lives now, just to kind of give people our own context. But we're kind of interested in, in hearing from you guys about your experience with the sutras. Like, at what point in your practice of yoga did you start to study it? Was it from the very beginning? And and if not, you know, what was the, the, the catalyst for you to dive into them? Do you want to say something, Dave? Yeah, yeah. Um... I think in this particular approach and uh, and the tradition in which we've studied, the, the Yoga Sutras were there pretty much from day one. Right okay. um, way, in the sense that I started just doing some group classes, but um, they, they were they were always there in the background and they've been the, the foundation for the approach we take to practice this tradition. And, and that's how it, it was always presented by Discachar. Um, yeah. And... And so they've always been there. It's been like the bedrock on which all of the practice and are built. And although um, our study of the sutras has obviously deepened over the years and we've gone into it in more and more um, depth, I think as a sort of fundamental support, if you like, for the practice, it's, mm. it's just something that has been taken for granted by this particular approach and this particular tradition. So um, it, it's kind of all, yeah, it's always been there. Yeah, I think I'd, I'd just like to add a couple of things to that. Um, that I, I started doing yoga in, with uh, Iyengar Iyeng, yoga. I started with Iyengar yoga and um, 
There are a couple of mentions of the Yoga Sutra by my Iyengar teacher, but, you know, nothing very much. But I was very curious as to where did all this stuff come from and where, you know, what, what was, why did, why did this yoga teacher say certain things? And, um, and I wanted to know about the context of it. And it was only really when I started with working with Paul Harvey and I met Dave at the same time, this was back in probably 86 or 87, that the Yoga Sutras, you know, the first retreat that Dave and I met on and went on with Paul, you know, we were introduced to this text, the Yoga Sutra, and not just introduced to the text, but introduced to um, the actual Sanskrit words and then deconstructing the words and then looking at it. And light bulbs were just going off um, thinking, wow, this is amazing. This is, you know, what, one of the things that um, Paul was able to do and, and, and the study of the Yoga Sutras was able to do was to make it a very contemporary text on psychology rather than a... Mm-hmm. Some kind of archaic ancient Sanskrit text which we're studying academically. This was much more like a book which had a lot of relevance and meaning and stuff that we could reflect on right now in our lives. And over the over the years, there have been you know we've continued basically we continued with that over the last thirty years using the Yoga Sutra as a kind of a source study um, and and companion to um, to to the yoga practice. But I do, but I also think that the Yoga Sutras holds a very special place in the way we have been taught and in the way we teach. Um, I noticed with lots of other teacher trainings and um, uh, traditions, you know, the Yoga Sutra is kind of given a given a respectful nod to, but I don't think very many people have kind of gone into the depth of the Sanskrit that uh, we were lucky enough to have been exposed to. And the people who have done, a lot of them have been more academics. So there is a kind of an <laughs> academic strain or an academic uh, approach to the Yoga Sutra, which is a little bit divorced from practice. I think what Deskachar was really uh, good at, and then Peter Hersnack, who we worked with, and Paul, our teachers, you know, they were really applying the concepts of the Yoga Sutra into our lives. And I think that's where we have uh, taken inspiration and, and, and reflection and deepened our practice. What I would add to what Ranji said there is, is that not only was it um, the the psychology, it was also about the method of practice. Mm-hmm. So that in the way that we would do asana and pranayama, everything was referenced back to to the Yoga Sutra. And as Ranji's alluded to, the, the academic interpretations of the Yoga Sutra would would probably say, well, that you've taken a few liberties in the way that it's it, the Yoga Sutra has been understood. But that is the way that Krishnamacharya and Disakachar worked with it. They they saw it very much as our practice manual. Mm. So when when you were doing the way that you would approach your asanas, for example. Um, would be in harmony with certain key sutras in the from the Yoga Sutra. The way we did pranayama was always referenced back to the sutras on pranayama. So I, I, I think it was used as a very very practical manual for us. It was our like it was our like benchmark. It was what um, you know if you weren't practicing in a way that was consistent with the ideas in the Yoga Sutra, then then somehow you were going astray somewhat. And it's just a really good boundary, isn't it? It's a really good reference. It's a really good way of holding one's um, direction. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Maria was sort of um, kind of diving in a little bit about our excitement over having read your book and 
for me, even sort of in more recent years, coming across translations of the sutras that felt like they were speaking to me and speaking to my experience. Yeah. And in the the practice or the uh, the the learning that I had done, I guess I guess the sutras are kind of always there in the background, but kind of very quietly in the background yeah. and in kind of piecemeal as well. And so coming to books like yours and you know a couple of other more recent books that are looking at them like you're saying as a practice manual, but it also feels a bit like it's a manual for living as well. Sure. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. I found that something that's really exciting as somebody who enjoys just having a little bit of guidance for things, but also, you know, this sort of philosophical underpinning that allows you to kind of orient yourself a little bit. I think that was one of the things that Desikachar Kachar and then, and then Pizza and, and, and Paul were, were masters at actually, is to take the Yoga Sutra and make it really relevant to everyday life. Mm. they um although the text in a sense is is a text on profound meditation because it it in in exploring the meditation path so explores the nature of your mind and your mind is is the same whether you're meditating or whether you're um out with the kids basically mm. uh you know you've got the same mind and the same kind of uh, processes go on i i think what they were really skillful at doing was to take these ideas and then to apply them into into modern life i mean deskachar of, of late has, has had a bit of criticism about the liberties that he took with the yoga sutra but actually the one thing he nobody can take away from him is how relevant he made them mm. to to everybody and you know in a sense there's not a lot of point having a 2000 year old text which sits on the shelf and uh, academically understand but it's no practical use to you Mm-hmm. Um, what he he did, and I, I think what Peter continued certainly, was to take this text and to make it relevant to, you know, 21st century. And I, and I think I'll still be for the tradition and yet being able to innovate um, and make the text relevant. I think that's a great skill, actually, and something that we, I think we both admire in in both Deskachar and particularly. And that we both admire in both of you. So what was the step to going from your your lineage and saying, now we're going to write a book ourselves? That was quite a big, it was quite a big thing. I mean, Jessica Jard died in, I think, was it 2017, Dave? I think Jessica Jard died in 2017. Peter died in 2016. Yeah. And we had been kind of fiddling around with writing some stuff for quite a few years we wrote a series of short booklets um i think we wrote 11 short booklets on various different aspects of yoga and i think that writing has for for me certainly has been a way of clarifying some of the ideas that we've been working with so you know having taught a lot of these ideas on teacher training courses or on study courses and thought about them i mean i still feel like a a, a novice digging around in a treasure cave and kind of think, oh, wow, look, there's, there's this and there's this and there's this. So <laughs> making more connections and kind of still loads of light bulbs are going off. Still about really, you know, like Sutra 2 or Sutra 3. It's not, you know, so there's a lot there to explore still. But, but I think the right, for me, the writing 
was a way of um, clarifying and um, putting putting where I where we've got to in order. I mean, it was a great it was a great topic. Dave and I would send each other drafts of bits of writing that we had done, and we'd be criticising them and discussing them, and you know, made a lot of notes on them. So I think we grew together on the project. We grew and and clarified our ideas together. And I feel, I, I don't feel it's the, def, you know, I, I, I don't think either of us feel it's the definitive thing, but it is a kind of a marker for us that this is how we understand the Yoga Sutras now, and this is where we've got to. And, you know, maybe there'll be more, hope, I hope there'll be more. I, I wondered, I hadn't read in your bios whether you taught in teacher trainings, and, and it, to me it was a real teaching text to people who are going to put it practically to use. I, I hope so. Yeah, I hope so. I mean, I think... Um, yeah, absolutely. That we, we, we divided the book up into uh, a dif- different parts. So there was a kind of a sadhana aspect. At the end of each of the 17 chapters, we had a little bit about how to how we might apply some of these ideas. And uh, we didn't we didn't kind of do direct translations of all of the sutras. We just picked 17 main key sutras and then explored their context, explored some of their teachings and added some some other of the sutras and then had a section on how that these might be applied either in daily living or specifically in yoga practice um, to make them practical. But I think it's quite a brave, well, a brave step. I think it's quite a big step. It was quite a big step for us to actually put our head over the power of it and say, OK, this is what we think at the moment. You know, it's just offering some things, offering where we're at at the moment. And I think that's a kind of reluctance, isn't it? To put your head too high um, over the parapet, as Ranji, Ranji put it. And yeah, I, I mean, certainly for me, I, I, I think the writing of the book was quite a painful process, actually, at times. It, it, it kind of felt quite a cathartic process. But it did definitely feel like we were, um, in some sense, uh, putting our stick in the ground, as it were, and standing up and saying, uh, this is kind of where we're working from, this is where we're coming from. And um, as Franji said, I, I, it, it's not perhaps going to be our last word on things, but I think actually uh, as, a first, as a first book, it will always be special in that way. And um, I, I'd like to think that it's it's kind of paved the way for, for, for things in the future. But I think, you know, like a first child, perhaps first, this first book will always be special. Yeah, I get that, that idea that, you know, that of that little bit, maybe even a little bit of hesitation about putting your head over the, you know, over the fence or, or putting a stake in the ground for something that shifts, yeah. you know, that can shift so much just from your own experience and and that also so many people have different views about about what's there and what it means. I know everyone that I've spoken to about this book has loved this idea of support, direction, and space. They've yeah. loved it. And and myself and Maria as well. So what where does that come from? Is that out of your own experience? Is that something from from your teachers? Like how can you give us an idea of the evolution of that construct? That formulation came from our teacher Peter Hersnack. Mm-hmm. who you know I, I, he was a he was a brilliant brilliant uh, man a lo- really lovely man and um he was he he made a lot of uh, very enlightening formulations and i think that was this particular one support direction and space was one of 
was was genius i think because it just it, it, in in three words it's summed up a, a, an approach to so many different things where simple <laughs> support direction space can be applied and we took our original idea was to 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 you to, to to call the book support direction space but as as my brother said uh you know if you call it support direction space it'll end up in the architecture section <laughs> of jobs so you never <laughs> get anybody reading it so it has you have to talk about the yoga sutra or use the word yoga so it became the subtitle but really support direction space was the underlying theme and because it relates so closely to the to the three guna um dave do you want to say some, some more about that uh yeah yeah um yeah as randy just said his formulation into support direction space was peter's um it didn't come directly from Descartes, although peter would would everything that he taught came uh, was based on on the inspiration he received from Descartes. i think what's what's unique about it and and i think this is this is where peter was a genius was he was able to come up with ideas that incredibly contemporary and that had a tremendous scope of application like you know if you you read the book you can see support direction and space applies to practice it applies to life it applies to decisions for example and yet it also um relates back very very directly to key philosophical ideas um at the heart of the yoga tradition so in this sense that the support direction space refers back to the the three guna uh, tamas rajas and sattva so Tamas, in a sense, uh, is support. So that's the idea of the inertia. Uh, rajas, which is the idea of movement or energy, is equated with direction. And, and sattva is the uh, the clarity and spaciousness, which is, uh, you know, space in the, in the formula of support, direction and space. So I, I think it's, it's a tremendously clever encoding, if you like, or recoding of a very traditional idea. Um, but in the way that the words, the language is used, uh, if you start to play with those words, support, direction and space, you can apply them to so many different areas of practice and life. Mm-hmm. And all we've done in the book, in a way, is, is try to tease out how we understood Peter's Peter's ideas about that. Um, added a few of our, our own, I'm sure, but um, essentially it was it was his brainchild. Mm. It feels like there are a number of threads that sort of run through the entire book, but just the, I guess, the overall teachings. And one of the ones that I really love the most is this idea of relationship. I see that, fl- that popping up in a lot of different places uh, through the book, and um, it feels to me like something that speaks directly to everyone's experience and everyone's struggle and so it almost draws a very clear line to how this practice and how this wisdom can be used to live a better life can you talk a little bit about how you've experienced that and also just when the, when you were first kind of hearing these ideas did they all make sense to you at that time have you you know has your understanding and how these things are applied in your life has that evolved as well yeah, so the answer to that that question about did they make sense? The answer is definitely no. I mean, <laughs> I, remember, I mean, the first time uh, Dave, Dave and I again, we were both on a a, a retreat in two thousand and four, I think. Uh, we 
first time that Peter came over to the UK because he was based in France, although he was half Danish and half Icelandic. He came over and gave a workshop, a weekend workshop. And it was really, really interesting because he was approaching ideas and practices that we were fairly familiar with from our work with Paul and with Jessica Char as well. But he was approaching them from a different angle, which was kind of unsettling. And, you know, the, the, the idea of, you know, the concept to, to go off piste a little bit, but, you know, the idea of a koan, a, a, a Zen koan, it's sort of like a, a, a statement which doesn't really make logical sense. At you all. Know, like, but it, it does. <laughs> the one hand clapping or whatever it is. And I think Peter sometimes talked, I don't know whether intentionally or unintentionally. I, I also think because he was a Danish, native Danish speaker, who mainly taught in French, who then taught in English. You know, sometimes his English was quite strange. It was not the English of a native speaker. But I think he was he was able to use that to say things that an, a native English speaker would not say in the way that he said them. But he said was absolutely perfect. And sometimes he would say things which left one a bit like, hearing a koan where you kind of like what does that mean i wonder how you know and it would just stay around running as a background program but i mean some of them are still running you know as for years and years and years and years um so i i think i think it's sometimes really great to have a teaching which isn't completely sewn up and clear and okay you get it you have to kind of go to it a little bit and you have to work with it and think about it and play with it and and, and still, I was reading something yesterday, and I was thinking, and, and I was still thinking, ah, oh, he said that. That's really interesting. Jessica Char defined yoga very much in terms of relationship, and mm-hmm. Peter also talked a lot about, uh, you know, yoga as being relationship, and it's very, very close concept of some yoga, which is a kind of confused relationship. So sometimes when we are in relationship with somebody or something or whatever we're in relationship with, sometimes over time that relationship can become cluttered and confused. And this becomes what what is called in the Yoga Sutra and Peter used to call it some yoga. Mm-hmm. And so the project of yoga is really how to simplify our relationships, clear our relationships so they become direct and uncomplicated. And I loved Peter's uh, one of one of the ways he described yoga was to become um, uh, to, to to create an uncomplicated wholeness um, because we're very complicated. We do all sorts of complicated things and we're kind of manipulative and complicated and holding ourselves together in all these weird ways. And I think Peter's project was to try to make us as simple as possible, as uncomplicated in our relationships as possible, which of course gives us tremendous freedom. Yeah, that Sam Yoga, what is it, Vairagya, or how do you uh, pronounce it? could be uh, Yoga, Sam Yoga, and Viveka, is that, is that what you're talking about? Viveka? Well, it was, Viveka was the discrimination, but it was also that um, the idea of letting go. You had Abhyasa and... Vairagya. It was a wonderful interplay between our desire to kind of seek and control, and then you the way that 
what's so difficult in yoga that's counterintuitive is that a lot of stuff you just have to let go. Sorry, I interrupted really. Keep going. Yeah, I mean, I, th- I think when you look at those two principles of Abhyasa Vairagya, um, Abhyasa being the practice and the discipline, and yet within that, uh, the Vairagya being the, the, the kind of the freedom, the letting go and the openness. Um, I, I mean, I think one of the rev- revelations for me was that, and, and again, this was this was Peter. I mean, he was a genius at, at kind of having this like X-ray vision. I think part of the matter. He 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 said, "Have you ever considered that Abhyasa and Vairagya is the method of yoga? I mean, th- th- this is what yoga is. These two yeah. factors. Everything else is m- merely elaboration. You know, yeah. everything else is merely how that works out. But actually, these two, this interrelationship between these two." This is the method of yoga that we're working with in 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 all spheres, really, and and I I just think that was incredibly perceptive mm-hmm. um, of him to to say that, and I and I completely agree with it actually. I I mean more and more, uh, I kind of think that is at the heart of the heart of the whole practice at least. I agree. I just I what I really loved was the way that you that you guys expressed it as. Um, cultivating stability and openness it was it was really interesting for me reading this book because I've been a bit of a sutras geek over the last few months so I've I've been reading so many different translations and I think I had an abhyasa and vairagya is, is one idea that seems to be no matter how many different translations that you run into there there seems to be a the way that that idea, that concept is expressed always seems to be very much the same. And so it was almost a bit shocking for me, to be honest, to read it and have this idea of, you know, even though the way that you put it is very much in line with, the, with you know, the other ideas. But just this idea of cultivating stability and openness somehow was just just spun me out. I just love that. I really do. I, and it it really speaks to how many different ways we can look at these same concepts, these same ideas. And it also, to me, feels a little bit like it's kind of slowly stripping back, stripping things all the way back, like you were saying, this simplicity in the relationships. Yeah, yeah, I'm just checking. Dhrita Bhumihi, wasn't it? Dhrita Bhumihi was the stability. Just trying to remember back to the openness. Do you have a stay on that one? Fire Yeah, yeah. Fire is open. We translate that. Commonly as a kind of radical openness, don't we? Um, which, which is often quite different to the way that um, it, it's understood as uh, as dispassion or yeah. kind of a kind of lack of attachment. That can often be understood as cutting yourself off from things. Mm-hmm. And I think, um, you know, I, I guess we've taken that a little bit further to say, well, cutting your songs, giving things up, letting things go uh, is definitely an important stage. But actually, um, the Vairagya ultimately is about allowing yourself to be touched and to be open and to feel things, you mm. know, because otherwise you, you can kind of uh, cultivate a kind of false Vairagya in which, in which you kind of put up walls between yourself and things that you you don't really want to engage in and yes it's certainly true to begin with certainly we 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 have to have discipline and we have to stop doing certain things that are are not helpful for us but then maybe we can move to a place where we can be a little bit more open and and i I think uh, that take on vairagya is something that that you don't always get i would have said from a a traditional reading is that what you meant ranji 
Yeah, I'm, ju- I'm just looking at the book now. It, 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 we've, I think we ultimately the test of vairagya is the ability to let ourselves be touched by life and yet still remain open and innocent. Um, I think that, that was that was the thing. Yeah, yeah. That theme comes through in the in the book so often. I mean, you referred to um, what is it with William James that unconditional positive regard of ahimsa, yep, yep. that that vulnerability that's essential. Yeah, absolutely yep. beautiful. One of the things that came to me in reading um, the in reading the section where you're talking about abhyasan vairagya is this. I was as I was reading it, I was one of the things that excites me the most about that that part of the sutras is this talk about enthusiasm or 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 approaching your your practice with a, a level of enthusiasm and what i read the way that you put it i thought it was really interesting you talk about i'm taking a quote here we need authenticity in our practice and awareness of our own responses there also needs to be some zeal or challenge yeah. we must sometimes approach our well you you had it in quotes but we must sometimes approach our physical mental or emotional edge Otherwise, the practice never deepens or matures. And what that brought to mind for me was it, it seems like a little, well, I shouldn't say it's a direction, but what I'm seeing in, in yoga is there's a real, there's a kind of a growing concern for safety. Mm-hmm. And, it, you know, it's sort of in some ways seems like it's driven by practitioners or or teachers who maybe spent the first part of their yoga career in, in incredibly intense practices, which left them injured in some way and so they've kind of swung in the other direction and so any talk about edge or or challenge feels a bit taboo sometimes <laughs> and i wondered i really wondered um kind of what your take on that is and how you're how you're approaching this idea of approaching your edge mentally physically or emotionally i don't think that um one's edge necessarily means um one's the physical limitations of of, of intensity or stretching or whatever i mean approaching one's edge could be can you sit still for 15 minutes you know that's (laughs) that's an edge which is a different type of edge to you know can you bind your arms in marichyasana or something like that it's a different a different edge so the 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 uh, I mean Peter's practices were often very simple us very simple asana but there could be an intensity with um, working with the breath and with working with the involvement which often felt as edgy if you like as with a with a very strong asana practice so that the edge edge can be in many different there can be many different edges, I would say. I agree, though, with Charles talking about also is a kind of trauma sensitivity. Yeah, I'm grateful it's come into the practice, but it's I've I've worked in some mental health environments where you have to be very careful with that edge. And I I, I know uh, Ranju, I think you have as well. Sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Does that come up as well? How does that work when you're pushing those subtler edges in a trauma sensitive sort of way? Well, I think that there's a, I mean, there's a difference in how one would, well, how I would work with individuals and in a group class situation. And, and obviously in a group class situation, um, what you do is 
you, you just can't do you you know you can you can be as sensitive as you can but you've got to work to, at some level to a common uh, a, a common denominator where everybody is is okay so i mean we we would be as sensitive as possible within a group class situation but how one would one would uh, approach an edge with somebody would be very very individual it would we both do a lot of one-to-one work um i think uh, what we we would we would be asking for feedback we would be asking for feedback both there in the practice but also um between sessions you know maybe asking for emails or phone contacts and um and then re- reflecting and reviewing how with the last practice we basically we give some we work through a practice we give them a practice we write it out and then we ask them to go away and practice that and give us feedback and then we we meet again in two weeks three weeks a month or or a week or however long and um and then we 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 talk about how that practice affected them and then make suitable amendments and developments from that so uh the one-to-one practice i think you can work on the specific edge of an individual psychological emotional or mental or physical more as a more precise in, in a more precise way than you can in the group class. Yeah, I think this is the mini yoga question, isn't it, really? Yes. I mean, we a lot of the teaching we do, as Ranji just said, is, is individual. And, um, y- you know, we, we we have this this concept of uh, mini yoga, the specific or individual application. And, and I, I think the way that we tend to approach that with people is make the practice and make the, the challenge, if you like. We... We try and make it like a shared project rather than something we we seek to impose on people. Mm. Um, and I think in the way that you do that, you you can be quite stiff to individual needs. And um, uh, you know, in a way, the the canvas is blank in the sense that we don't have a fixed practice form either that we're 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 working towards. The um, there can be a huge diversity in the type of practice and the level of the practice that we might give people. And I think that gives us a lot of scope, actually. Yeah, I I like the idea of exploring the concept that an edge isn't what we necessarily what we've always been thinking it is, or even what some teachers teach it as, that it's not necessarily some physical limitation, and that it can be something more. And it it feels like it's very much in line with everything that you talk about in the book, or I suppose the, the spirit of the book in this idea of sort of expanding our understanding of this simple, this language that we've all come to think of as something particular. Speaking to the the Vini yoga question, coming from an Ayurvedic background, I have this interest in this, the individualization of yoga. It feels like I'm starting to hear this being talked about a lot as well, just kind of in the general space. And I do, I wonder what, what you guys would have to say about what potential tools we can use to help in group classes to empower students to discover themselves a bit better well and are you using the sutras to do that uh, using the sutras to do to do to do what sorry Maria. well so to empower your students to is that what you're saying Shara? to kind of yeah, individualize. it's really just about kind of owning their practice yeah one thing that's really really simple um that we do in a group class is to encourage people to practice with their eyes closed mm. now if you practice with your eyes closed, Love it. I, I mean, for the standing for standing postures, we mainly do with um, eyes open for balance and everything. But 
for the majority of our classes we practice with the eyes closed and that and we may give a lot of um verbal cues not not i would say not instructions or not directives but cues which help people to direct their attention to certain things so we're not really about imposing external forms or ideals, but more about cueing people to become aware of certain sensations in their bodies. So this is the group class situation without pairing, without comparing, oh, you know, Diana over there, she can do this or, you know, Chris can't do that, whatever like that. It's much more about your experience and, and using that idea that I said earlier about the zen koan thing yeah. i mean i think some sometimes we're saying things which um people might struggle to understand a little bit but by saying them and repeatedly saying them and inviting exploration we i think in group classes do invite people to have an internal and and more of an internal and meditative experience than um a kind of a, a simple stretch and relax or a or, you know a, a power thingy I, I think it's a much more meditative experience the way we teach that's one one thing i would say dave do you yeah i i mean i i think we both uh also we i mean certainly i would introduce certain ideas from the yoga sutra at the start of the class um you, you know not in a heavy way but often in, in quite a light way and um, it's surprising how those ideas can kind of overflow and, and into people's lives, you, you know, as practical ideas into into people's lives. So I think there is quite a lot that you can do to broaden people's scope, I guess, uh, to think about yoga in their lives beyond, um, you know, the hour or the hour and a quarter they come to the class. I think I'd also just like to say something uh about Ayurveda because the more I've got to know a little bit about Ayurveda the more I've appreciated that Krishnamacharya and Desikachar's approach to working with people particularly on a one-to-one basis really was an application of Ayurvedic principles Mm. in the way that they did things in the way that they they believe in in meeting with people individually in the way they would consult with people they would talk to them krishnamacharya Deskachar would, would always take pulse for example they would they would touch the skin um they would talk to the person extensively they would often make dietary suggestions not necessarily extensive but they would make you know make one or two key suggestions um so i i think the whole const the whole context in which they worked was a bit like an ayurvedic consultation and uh, although I can't say that I do exactly the same. I, I, I think there is, the more I understand about Ayurveda, the more I can see influences of that upon the way Desikachara and Krishnamachara used to work, certainly, that's for sure. And it, it gets back to the way you guys use the gunas. It was just, it was wonderful to have the, the, the structure, the direction and the space come back to Thomas Rajas and Sapa. I thought that, that brought all of that in and encapsulated it beautifully because it can be applied on so many different levels of life through every kosha, through every uh, one of the eight limbs. It's the master key, isn't it? It's the master it is. Key. It's, it's interesting because it's in Ayurveda, it's the foundation of Ayurvedic psychology 
as well. And so when you think about it in relation to, and you touched on that, I think, in the book too, when you think about it in relation to the sutras kind of being about, in some ways about psychology, I definitely think about it as being about psychology. I mean, the, the myth potentially, and I think it is a myth, but the, the, the myth is that um, he taught basically one on yoga, one on Ayurveda and one on grammar. And, and the idea is the, um, you know, the, the text on Ayurveda is primarily addressing issues of the body. The, the text on grammar is addressing ishation and relationship and the, the text on yoga is essentially addressing issues with our, with our mind. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it's a kind of, I think it's a story rather than, than a literary reality, but I think it, it's put it nicely into context and mm-hmm. that actually it puts the Yoga Sutra and, and the Yoga Project in the context of a sort of healthy mind, um, developing clarity, uh, stability and, you know, resilience. And, and uh, the Yoga Sutra is encouraging us to, to, to have an open resilience which, you know, is a very hot topic at the moment, particularly over here. I don't yeah. know whether it is for you guys, but having a, a kind of mental resilience and stability is important. It's considered to be really important at the moment. Very, but you, if you look up um, yoga for mental health, you know, you get the five best poses or one of these, you get all this silliness and all this, this is what, these are the five things you should do. Yeah. Whereas I yeah. think your master key approach allows people to individualize and really explore developing resilience. The word vinyoga itself is interesting because actually the, the V, the V, which is used as the prefix, the V, uh, is short for the Sanskrit word vishesha. And vishesha means specific, unique, individual, um, you know, particular. So V and then niyoga is application. So vinyoga means the specific and unique application. It should really be vinyoga of yoga. So it's the, the specific application of yoga to this particular person at this particular time in this particular place. It's a very unique um, application. So it's not a lot of people think it's vinyoga, like vini is the prefix and yoga, you know, it's a particular form of yoga. It's not that. It's a particular specific application. The vinyoga of whatever it is you do it could be the vinyoga of cookery, the vinyoga of sports, the vinyoga of yoga, whatever it is. But it, it's the word vinyoga means the specific application. Yeah, I loved reading that. I, that was not something that I was aware of. And reading that it, again just made a lot of <laughs> a lot of sense to me, especially yeah. from the. And we want to we definitely want to ask you about your course, but I, I had just a couple of more things that I wanted to kind of ask you about. One, what if that's OK? Sure. Um, your explanation of the yamas and the niyamas, particularly the yamas, that was an approach to it that I have found the most insightful and practical, especially as someone who's been in a, you know, in a relationship for, you know, quite quite some time. And um, for you know about 20, 25 years I've been married. But reading that really, I felt opened the yamas and the niyamas, opened that up in such a way because I, the way that it's always been taught to me has just been so, the only way I can think about it is kind of distant. It hasn't been in a way that feels like it's in my space. But the, you know, the, a lot of 
of the teaching is aspirational, isn't it? Like this is oh. what you should be doing or something, or this is what the ideal thing is. Isn't it? Okay. Yeah. Yeah. And, but reading that, it just it felt like it came from someone or two people or more or whatever who had really experienced relationship and understood the challenges of relationship. How has that way of looking at it um, informed your relationships? Well, I think that um, this the, the way that we have presented the Yama again, which came from Peter's formulation and then from further thoughts and, 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 and work that we've both done, I think that this has touched a lot of people and a lot of people have said that this is the clearest um, evocation of, of, of yamas that they've come across mm-hmm. because it's it, because it's very personal and it's also not um, yeah as I said it's not aspirate it's not like it's something which is in some kind of external imposed ideal you know ahimsa you should be nonviolent you know what does that mean and, and, yeah. and for me for me the the one of the really big light bulbs was we, we've we've drawn a little diagram of you know the five yamas ahimsa satya asteya brahmacharya and aparigraha um and then me at the center and then these arrows radiating out to each one of them as if you know how am i in relationship to ahimsa how am i in relationship to asteya how am i in relationship to aparigraha and it's as if these these concepts of non-violence or um truthfulness or, or, or non-stealing etc are these external um ideals and and the relationship between am i any good at this one or am i any good at this one or and i think that's a really really um uh, self-destructive way of approaching it it's mm. so better to actually ground the yama in our individual relationships in my relationship with x am i allowing a space for this to happen or you know is there a space for this to happen is there a space for non-grasping to happen or you know violence to not happen etc etc um and that makes the yamas a more intimate and personal and lived experience now i'm not saying that you know we're always we're always succeeding in them all but uh, you know by a long way you know but but at least we have a a a framework in which we can uh, make the yamas more realistic and more practical as as tools and sometimes i've you know i've realized where or I've, i've you know i've had insights into where i'm screwing up or where there may or where there may be screwing upness happening and, and the idea is how do we how do we kind of unpick that and how do we make the a complicated relationship which has got some yoga to use that word again you know somehow become cluttered and confused how can we just retrace our steps a little bit and and try and create a a, a more simplified clearer relationship which isn't cluttered I don't know, I mean that's that's probably a bit abstract but um, that it, it has been very very helpful in grounding it in real relationships. It really provides questions you can ask yourself. Yep. If, you were, if you were gonna marriage counsel yourself or have a teacher-student relationship or, yeah. yeah. I think you're right. And I, and I think those questions 
So very practical questions, you know, which if you just stay with the very um, classical interpretations of, of Yama, you know, ahimsa, non-violence, being non-violent. Well, in, in, in a way that that's that can feel like it's a limited question, whereas when you ask yourself, am I giving the space for another person to be as they are? That's a massive open ended question. It's like you're going from a very narrow band perception of to something that's very wide open. So I, I think you're absolutely right. They give you a set of very broad questions that you can ask yourself um, in thinking about your relationships. And I think this formulation of the Yama like this was probably Peter's most one of his most genius moments. To me, it has completely, completely transformed my appreciation of, of Yama and, and the Yama, but Yama particularly. Mm. So, uh, yeah, I think it was genius. Yeah. It was genius. And, and in a way, we, we've done our bits to, to reflect that. And I'm sure, again, we've added our, our bits to it. But th- th- these we, we can't say we've originated these ideas. Um, they're just pure genius, I think. No, you honor him so deeply with the book, as well as adding your own. I like Dave. I mean, this is an example of Dave's genius, which I, I, Yama is the pranayama of relationship. That's really cool, Dave. I love that. That was Dave. That came from Dave. When you say the pranayama of relationships, what you mean is that like nadi shodhana literally means the clearing of channels it's the purification of channels mm. and same way yama yeah yeah exactly of the yeah. channels between us and other people it's yeah. the, the channels which need unclogging or de- yeah. declearing and that's why it's the, the the yama can be seen as the pranayama of relationships <laughs> so much in this yeah i think the principles of yoga in some respects are quite um straightforward i think most of it you you can you can reduce to creating a certain stability and in a similar way to to create an openness and unclutteredness and spaciousness in in all aspects of our being i think those two principles are kind of there um throughout it the implications and ramifications of this are just uh, are are huge so i think Mm. you, you know yoga in a sense if you can get to its key is actually quite simple and yet its scope is massive if if that makes any sense yeah it does it makes a lot of sense and I think that a lot of I think that you pointed to a lot of that in this book and for me for some reason that that gives me comfort it gives me comfort to, to to read and to have kind of confirmed again and again that the world isn't as complicated as we have the tendency to make it well there was that I think we do make things very complicated yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I wonder if um, if you guys teach, speaking of pranayama, do you guys teach that structural breath that I, I've heard about with Gary Crafso and the, I, do you know what I'm talking about? Can you say some more about the structural breath? Yeah, it's, it's so often I'm teaching people to find their exhalation and you talked about the exhalation as the primary breath. But then it's sometimes taught, and you you had that wonderful idea of using the exhalation to clean, like the vacuum cleaner cleans the carpet. You've got to create kind of stiffness. Yeah. But there's that breath that I've heard also Leslie Kamenoff talk about where you uh, exhale and contract down in the belly, and then you keep that 
uh, stability, maybe that mula or that Uriana Banda, and then you take the breath with a firm belly up into the chest on the inhalation. Yeah. Except I, I have had problems with it myself, and and I have and in the face of anxiety, everyone just goes pear shaped immediately. So I was I was so wondering what you do with that. <laughs> that was the that was the way, you know, we were originally taught uh, this uh, idea called directional breathing, and directional breathing was the idea that you inhaled and expanded from the chest down towards the abdomen, and then as you exhaled, you started the muscular movement of the pelvis and, and, and abdomen upwards. So there's a kind of a, a direction to the movement of the body as you inhale and exhale. I think one of the ways that um, we or, you know, now teach it is rather than kind of doing that, rather than doing that, you create the conditions whereby something like that can happen. And it's a very different experience because if you inhale with a feeling of stability in the pelvis area, you kind of grow taller. And if you exhale with a stability in the head and in the sternum and in the ribs, the abdomen is just drawn up gently. So it's... Rather than thinking, I must draw my abdomen up, I must expand my chest. Instead, you think, okay, I'm going to take support on my head as I exhale. And and, and by that, I mean, just try and create a stability in the head and try and create a, keep the keep the chest a little lifted as you exhale. And it draws the abdomen in. It's not that you are pulling the abdomen in. The abdomen is being drawn in. And then at the end of the exhalation, just keep a bit of stability in the pelvic area and allow the inhalation to arise out of it, a bit like a, you know, the, a plant growing in soil, and there's a kind of a lengthening and an opening. So without imposing too much, I think some of the visualizations or um, bhavana, we call them, um, help something like that to happen. Yes, that was absolutely beautiful. Mm-hmm. Can you talk more about bhavana? Because that's a recent word for me, and it's something I'm so excited about because it feels so powerful. <laughs> yeah. Um, okay. <laughs> so um, the idea of bhavana, the, the word bhavana can mean lots of different things in, in Sanskrit. It can mean um, just a becoming of something. It can mean a feeling about something. It can mean it means to cultivate something. In the way that we we use it in this book, we kind of are giving it a particular meaning uh, in that we seem to signify the way that we we might imagine or cultivate a particular feeling or imagine a particular connection in the body. Uh, and the the way we understand this process happening is is that when we use a bhavana, we're always invoking something that's real in the body. So we might say in your imagination, I'd like you to link your, your left foot with your, your right hand, for example. So they're real. Those things are real. You've got a foot and you've got a hand. So there's something real. And then we ask you to imagine something. So maybe that there's a, a link and there's almost like a channel between the two which can into which you can almost breathe. Now, that's imaginary. 
And so in the way that we work with Bhavana, there's always this interaction between something that's real and something that you imagine. And that kind of edge between imaginary appears to be an incredibly fertile place. And so uh, it create it can create two things. Firstly, is the depth of involvement, which can be very deep, come in very, very deeply. And also it can be very powerful in, in creating a, a, a kind of a new sense of, of being, if you like. So um, we use Bhavana quite a lot to, to really pull, pull people in to create and cultivate a particular feeling. And um, the more these this imagery that we use can touch ideas that come from the yoga tradition, um, the more powerful it appears to be. So you can evoke the images of the sun and the moon in a in a very skillful way, or, or we we might create imagery that invites us to things the nadi, the channels in the body, um, and that can add a, a layer to the practice, a layer to the physical practice or the breathing practice, which can take you into a completely different space. I think it can really it can like supercharge the the experience of the practice. Yeah. I, th I think in some ways bhavana is kind of like embodied poetry. You know, it, it, it evokes it evokes experiences which you then yeah. you know work with and 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 I, I sometimes use the imagery that you know sometimes with bhavana we, we might suggest something and when you first hear it you think I have no idea what that means. I don't get that. how can I how can my left hand you know link to my right foot in that way what does that mean uh, but if you just stay with it i sometimes use the idea of, like with a in the old days when you would develop a photograph in a dark room in a tray you have a white piece of paper and you shake this tray in the darkness and after a while there's just a slight image that starts coming and you keep shaking it and you keep shaking it until something gets stronger and stronger and i think sometimes bhavana works like that that you don't really have an idea of what this means, but you keep on working with it and something starts growing within you. And it's a very internal experience. Talk about approaching your edge. <laughs> Beautiful. Do you use much anatomy in that embodiment process? Sometimes. <laughs> uh, um, I think we do. I think we do use some. We do use some anatomy, but actually, I think the accuracy of the anatomy is not the most important thing. Strangely enough, it's it's, it's kind of almost that the fact that you are is the linking and imaginative process that is is most important. So I don't think to work well with physical bhavana necessarily um, need to have a great depth of anatomical knowledge uh it perhaps could enhance but um i don't think it's essential and so you you guys are putting together a course an online course we'd love to hear a little bit more about it on uh the first chapter of the yoga sutras online. tell us a bit of, about it where it, you know what's how it's come about? Has it been something that's been in the works for a, a long time? You're taking it online. What can people expect to to learn? In, in our teacher training courses, we have um, touched on a number of the sutras. We didn't we didn't go through each of the sutras individually, one by one, and deconstructed each uh, sutra and each word. So uh -huh. a few years ago, we did this for the first time where we went through each sutra chronologically, if you like, 
with a lot of attention to each single word, the Sanskrit of each word, how that breaks down. And then we've also um, looked at some of the traditional commentaries and what the commentators have said in Sanskrit. You don't need to know Sanskrit, by the way, to, to kind of appreciate the course, because we provide, you know, we tell you, we, we, we go into it in quite a lot of detail and we chant the sutras as well. So we did this as a, a real life thing. We've probably done it maybe three times. This is the, we were due to do it again. We, we did the first weekend and then, and then the lockdown happened. So we decided to take it, do it as an online course. And what you will do, what you get is a, you'll get worksheets with the sutras, with the breakdowns, with the meanings. And we go through that, um, deconstructing the meanings and take using both traditional ideas and traditional um, understandings of what these mean but also um, supplementing that with um, our own understandings and ideas as we've talked about from from Peter Hersnack and from Paul Harvey and Deska Char and how they have understood these sutras um, and we intersperse that with some chanting of the sutras because chanting of the sutras really really deepens one's relationship with the sutras and also a little bit of practice obviously we haven't done the we haven't done the online course yet but we, we have all the material for it we'll we'll refine that a little bit but we, we've got the material um i think it's a fantastic we've been working with small groups of you know 10 people um i think it's a great opportunity to jump in and explore explore the, the sutras in a new way P peter had this beautiful expression that chapter one was for the innocent somebody who had who hadn't lost their innocence i thought that was a really beautiful um formulation of chapter one it has a particular flavor it's its title is samadhi pada which is the chapter on samadhi on the deepest um meditative experiences but if you think of it only as a sort of an esoteric samadhi chapter, you miss a lot of profound teaching. There's a lot in chapter one, which is very, very applicable and um, highlights a lot of stuff within our lives, uh, as well as a lot of psychology. Um, so it's very, very practical. Dave, do you want to add anything? I'd just like to say I, th I think it's good, good, quite exciting for us in the sense where it this potentially can can move beyond um you know the the, the shores of the uk i i mean i don't yeah. think six months ago we, we really ha had thought about taking it online in the same way but now that we're we're actually going to take this step i i think it's it, it feels quite exciting for us you know to be able to do that really to to reach out and broaden um potentially that you can do it so um I'm kind of looking forward to it. There's a bit of me wondering quite how it will how it will work, but I'm sure we'll we'll cope with those challenges as we as we as we go with it. Um, I think it's going to be a brave new world for us, certainly. It's nice right. the way that this silly COVID-19 can can make us do new things and have a, have us adapt. You never know where your yoga will take you. Yeah, indeed. <laughs> well, gentlemen. <laughs> Congratulations on this fabulous book. I am sharing it with anyone and everyone who who will listen. Um, and uh, and I'm you know we're both wishing you the the best you know the most success with all of this. And it feels like it's inevitable and in, just in 
just in the, the beauty of this book that's there, it's really touching. It's touched us in many ways. And, and I know that it's touching pl- plenty of other people out there as well. So we really want to thank you both for the time um, and for just having this conversation. There's so many more things that we could talk about, but our time. I, I hope one day actually we can have you back because I've yeah. got pages and pages of questions. <laughs> questions. Or we can hopefully when the travel restrictions get lifted, we could maybe make our way to the UK and get a chance to practice with you in person. We'd love we'd love to. Yeah. Brilliant. Thank you so much to the both of you. You're welcome. Yeah, thank you. Bye. Take care. Stay safe. And you guys. Take care. Bye. Okay, well, I hope that you enjoyed that and that you weren't too annoyed by the sound issues. We mentioned that we could have talked with these guys forever, and we really just appreciated their humble and yet so lived and deeply insightful take on not just the sutras, but the practice of yoga as a tool for living, yoga and Ayurveda as tools for living a really good life. So as we talked about in the podcast, Ranju and Dave, they're offering a deeper study online course on the Yoga Sutras Chapter 1, which begins in June, and you can find all the details for that in the show notes. They are off. They are also, since our podcast, they actually decided to offer another shorter review course of the Yoga Sutras on Chapters 1 and 2, which is also going to start in June, and Maria and I are actually planning to jump on. If you've ever wondered about the Yoga Sutras, or if you've ever wanted just to get a more personal feel for how they might serve you in your life, I would highly recommend jumping on one or the both of their courses. And Maria and I have already recorded our follow-up conversation to this one, so we're going to be sharing that next. So definitely stay tuned for that one. You know, we also just want to thank you so much for listening and for your emails of encouragement and support. You know, this podcast is something that we're having so much fun with, and we're really delighted to hear that you're sharing in that joy. So if there is something that you are interested in hearing about, or like us, you've got, maybe you have questions about how aspects of yoga and Ayurveda that you might have heard about are supposed to work in real life, let us know. That is what we love diving into and investigating, and it's also what we really love talking about. So until then, Namaste.